Um, been in James for a few weeks now. The very first week, we talked about how to count it all joy when we go through various trials, which is a ridiculous thing um, to consider doing or thinking is even possible unless we know that the trial we go through is not because we have done something wrong necessarily or because God is angry with us. But the reason why we're able to have joy when we go through various trials is to know that every single time God is at work in you and me. And if God is at work in you and me, it means that we are His. That He considers us to be His child. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is a reason to rejoice. Because I don't feel like I am a lot of times. I don't feel like I should be a child of the Most High God. Um, and yet, there is a constant reminder every time I go through a difficulty to know, to sense that God is near and that God is actually produce. He cares about me enough to produce something in me, to work something out in me that matters eternally. That He's actually bringing me from the sinful, ugly mess that I used to be and conforming me, translating me into the image of His Son. And He's doing that because He loves me and He's doing that because He loves you. And so that's what we talked about the very first um, week in James to count it all joy. Uh, last week, we talked about how if you la lack wisdom, ask for it. And if you ask for it, don't doubt. <laughs> know that the one that you're asking is extremely able, extremely willing to give you that wisdom which you ask for. He's delighted to do so. And so need to know that, that not only that we have a, a, a God that has a storehouse of good things for us, but that he actually also wants to outfit us in these things that he stores. Um, and so we looked at that last week. This week, uh, we're going to talk about personal achievements or lack of personal achievements and learn how to brag properly as Christians in the body of Christ. How many of you are good at boasting? Well, you guys are full of it. There you go. Like two, two hands were like, eh. like we all are, whether we do it vocally, like outside or publicly or not. Like I am, I am really, really good at boasting. Most of it goes on inside of me because I always need to look humble in front of you. But I'm like my biggest fan most of the time. Right? There's all, kinds of, there's all kinds of things that I can pat myself on the back over, and I often find myself um, doing that. And uh, we're, we're going to um, figure out how to, today how to, how to actually boast properly. Um, and so um, this is going to be a neat word. I was kind of blessed looking at this this week. James chapter 1, we're going to take verse 9, 10, 11. And it says this, Let the lowly brother, or poor, boast in his exaltation, and the rich, and I'm going to add the word because it's implied, boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Just not this morning. 
Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. It appears that in the the congregations, the the diaspora, the dispersion uh, that James is writing to, they're made up of people that come out of and are maybe even currently living in different economic or financial realities. We'll actually see this clearly as we go through the book of James. He's going to address rich and poor and the way that they uh, coexist together in the church several times in this book. He's going to, we're going to see it again in chapter 2. We're going to see it again in chapter 5. So this is something that, um, that is real to who James is writing to. Just like today, in today's congregation, we all come from different economic financial places. Especially if you go to um, the Three Rivers location, because you have this, this place that's a resort where most people who come from church from the resort are retired. It's a second or maybe even third home. It's a completely different financial context they come from. And then we've got people that are showing up there that are down in Three Rivers on the other side of the tracks uh, that are just scraping by and trying to figure out how they're going to live from day to day and week to week. And so we, we, we see the same thing um, in our congregations uh, today. And what it seems like here uh, to who James is writing to is you've got people that are well off financially and you've got people that are not. And it also seems, according to James, that these economic barriers, um, even these social or financial divides, were brought into the church and working themselves out in ways that only the world usually works these things out. And that's a bummer. Um, and the way that that's done is according to preference, uh, partiality, privilege, and favoritism. I was bored this week. I'm sitting on the couch. I got the TV going, and I'm flipping through, um, looking for something. And Titanic's on, right? And it's like the prime example of how the world um, treats and responds to um, financial barriers and contexts, right? You've got this ship, and they're selling tickets, but not everybody gets the same ticket, right? They're all going to the same place, but they're all riding differently. And so you've got levels in this ship, and according to how much money you have tells you what level you're going to be on, what kind of people you're going to be around, and what kind of amenities you're going to get, right? Everything's categorized, systematized. And these people that are down here on this part of the deck aren't allowed onto this deck. And these people on this deck are not allowed onto this deck. Everything's separated according to their kind, which happens to be their financial makeup, right? They're all occupying the same boat. They're all going to the same destination. They're all depending on the same people and the same machinery and the same security measures to get them safely to their destination, but they're living completely independently of one another based on their financial context. And unfortunately, the church does this sometimes too. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those, but I've been in several in my life. It was clear to see how the cliques worked because everybody gravitated towards their kind. 
people that lived like them. This is the ugly dilemma. Is that the church sometimes resembles the Titanic. And it shouldn't. The church is not designed by its designer to look like that does. Our social and our financial status may mean a lot to the world, but it really doesn't mean a thing in here, does it? The church is by nature designed to be countercultural, reversing and putting to shame the fallible systems and the relational constructs of the world. The classes and statuses out there hold no weight in here due to all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said. By the way, this tendency for us to lump together with our own kind is not an ugliness that's reserved only for the rich. Like the poor people do this too. This is our response to the rich. I don't mean our like we're all poor here. I'm just saying our. Like, like the poor people will know that they're dead. And so out of, out of bitterness and out of resentment and out of anger towards those people, they'll lump together. And they'll fire their shots. And they'll stick together. we got to stick together. Right? Like it goes both ways. Also, the tendency to get caught up in the things of the world and to worry and to labor over earthly things isn't an ugliness that's only reserved for the rich. Poor people do it too. A lot of you remember, I think it's the end of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't worry about these things you're worrying about. Where you're going to go tomorrow, where your next meal is going to come from, where you're going to work, what kind of car you're going to drive. Like, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and I'll, I'll fix these things. Like, I'll take care of the details. You just keep your eyes on me. Right? We can also get caught up in things and take our eyes off Jesus, whether we have money or not. We all do it. Right? The poor falls into it, too. It just looks different. But something that we see consistently throughout the New Testament is a greater danger... And thus a greater warning given to the rich rather than the poor in these matters. And these verses given here by James are no exception. We have this one little comment given to the poor in verse 9, and then everything else that follows is for the rich. Okay? So let's take a look at this. First, with verse 9 which says, again, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The thing that first catches my eye concerning the, the poor here is that the poor brother has something to boast about. That just looks weird to me. It's highly unusual for somebody who's poor to have anything to boast in. It strikes me as weird because when one is poor in an earthly sense, there is no platform for boasting. There's nothing to boast about, there's nothing to boast in, unless he has something that the world doesn't know about. The goal of Christ is to outfit that poor man with riches beyond what the world is able to offer and beyond the poor man's comprehension. And it comes to him by way of faith in the belief, in the knowledge that Christ has forgiven his sins and imputed to him the righteousness of God, thus exalting him to the highest place of riches. And it is in this that he has a reason to boast. It is in this that he boasts in his exaltation, which is joy. His joy 
is in Christ and the works of Christ on his behalf. The poor man existing and living for this world has no reason to boast at all. But the poor man living and existing for the world to come has every reason to. Thus, as Jesus once said, though he is yet poor, he is rich. The poor man knows it when he meets Jesus. When he experiences Christ and all that Christ offers. And there's much rejoicing as a result. He can boast in that. Verse 10 goes on to say, And the rich boast in his humiliation. The rich man, on the other hand, in a worldly sense, has every reason to boast. Because he has much. There is plenty there. In whatever form it may take for him to touch and to look at and to point to, in light of his accomplishments and his achievements. Unless he has truly met Christ and had an experience with the living Savior. Because Christ isn't impressed with what he has. And if he is in Christ, then he will ultimately cease to be impressed with it as well. Which manifests itself in humiliation. A humble posture. Humility says that Jesus didn't save him because of his riches, but that he saved him in spite of his riches. Maybe you could even say from them. Giving him something altogether better. To show him what true riches are. And in the rich man's revelation of what true riches are, he is humbled in his newfound knowledge. He is humbled in his newfound discovery that the things he used to find so much value in no longer hold value compared to that which Christ has freely given him. And it is in this that he now has something to boast in. That being his humility. There's also here revealed by James the sad truth of the rich man's demise should he not find humility in his position of wealth. And that's a desolation along with the demise of his things. Verse 11 goes on to say, The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. See, if, he's, if, if we are seeking to be rich, to find something to satisfy us and to fulfill us apart from Christ, if we are chasing and pursuing the gift rather than the gift giver, we will die in that pursuit. But, if we realize that all the value is wrapped up not in the gift, but in the gift giver, and we pursue him, we will find life. It's taken me a long time to put this together in my life. And there's still days where I have a good forgetter and I, and I forget and I pursue the things that have no life in them rather than the life giver. That's all that James is really getting to here. 
Like I mentioned earlier, it's obvious that James has more words for the one who is rich because it is true that it is the one who is rich that it's at far greater risk of writing Jesus off than the one that is poor. Have you guys seen this to be true in your life? It doesn't mean that a rich man can't be saved. It just seems like it's a little bit harder. The rich young ruler comes to mind. Do you remember that story? As well as the picture of of trying to stuff or squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle as being how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom, right? But what that doesn't mean is that the death of Christ is more effectual for the one that is poor than the one that is rich. It simply means that the one who is rich has more hurdles to Christ than the poor man. He has more stumbling blocks. He has more resistance. See, Jesus doesn't hate rich people. There's a lot of Christians that actually think that. That all Jesus thought was that rich people are bad. And he didn't. There's a lot of Christians that think that just because a a Christian has money, that they're evil. That they can't be a true Christian. Money is not the problem, right? Here's what Paul says to Timothy. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, even though I think it's a gateway for a lot of temptations and dangers that may not be good for us. That in and of itself is not the root of evil. It's the love that we, the pursuit of it. There's more hurdles. There's more stumbling blocks there. He doesn't look at the rich as less than anybody else. He just knows more than anyone else does that they possess the greater challenge to surrender. They possess the greater challenge to faith. They possess possess the greater challenge for a real need for something greater. Much of our response for help depends on our need for help, does it not? And spiritually speaking, our need is the same. But the problem is that we confuse and interpret our spiritual need with our financial needs, with our situational needs. And this is where the rich man needs a little more care and a little more instruction and a little more words, maybe, from James. We can think that we are rich, lacking nothing, while being completely and spiritually bankrupt. Any of you ever been there? In a position where you thought that you had everything you needed, that you secured for yourself a comfortable context and had no idea that you were naked, spiritually, lacking in every single way. I want you to hear something interesting. You don't need to go there with me. If you're a note taker, you can write it down, go there later. There's a church in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, when it was written by John, was written to seven real, literal churches that really existed in that day. We all know that, right? Okay. The last one, letter that goes out, is to a church called Laodicea. And what, what, John's do, what Jesus is doing here through John is he's actually handing out report cards to these churches, Right? And this is what the one to the Laodicean church sounds like. Listen to this. 
to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, and pitiable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove. There's the blessing in this harshness. So be zealous and repent. And then what's said? Come on, you evangelists out there. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Do you realize that that statement, behold, I stand at the door and knock, is probably used more in an evangelistic context than any other context? Because it, it sounds, it's a good one. Do you realize this isn't an altar call? This statement has nothing to do with non-believers coming to Jesus. Jesus is talking to his people. His people, because they think they're rich and they've got everything taken care of and in its place, have put Jesus outside the door. And he's saying, is it cool if I come back in? Because I'm pretty sure you need me. But they think they don't. You know what these guys are missing, right? The church of Laodicea. They're missing Jesus. They're thinking they can do well in existing as the body of Christ while cutting the head off. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody exist in this world without a head. I haven't. I don't think it's possible medically. It ain't possible spiritually either. Their own riches have replaced him. Their own achievements have replaced him. Their own accomplishments have replaced him. Their lack of need and dependence on something greater than themselves and greater than what they're able to produce for themselves have kicked Jesus out of the church. You see, they thought that because they were rich in a worldly sense that they had all they needed apart from Christ. But Jesus knows different. He knows it's an illusion. He knows that there is no possible replacement for Him in what He brings. But sometimes we do, don't we? I know I do. I do it in my life all the time. I wish I could sit here and say to you, I know every moment of every day that Christ is all I have and all I need, but that would be a lie. My water, spiritually speaking, the, the temperature fluctuates all the time inside of this heart and inside of this head. 
That's why I need you in my life to speak truth and to tell me truth when I forget it, when I deny it. That's why I need the Word of God and we need to open it like we're doing this morning so that we can once again be calibrated and become hot or cold by knowing that Christ is all we have and we are nothing without Him. Oftentimes we'll say to ourselves, I'm not suffering right now. I'm not living in poverty right now. I'm not scraping to get by right now. We're good. We got this. We got this. But spiritually, in that moment, we're dead. And herein lies the stumbling block for the rich. That they're self-sustaining. That they're able to provide what's needed for themselves and their lack, and they cannot They're dead wrong. It is only through the humility we have in having an encounter with the living God that we're able to know that without Him we are lost and poor and destitute and doomed. It's only through an encounter with the living Savior that we're able to clearly see and maintain the reality of our spiritual deficit. Having said all that, I want us to take away three things from this text. Number one, your accomplishments or lack of accomplishments are no good here. Amen? What you out there have accomplished or what you out there have not accomplished doesn't matter in here. That's what's so rad about the church. Like, that's good news for me because... I never accomplished a thing when I got here. I didn't have nothing to offer the Lord and nothing to offer any of you when I met the Lord. I had nothing. And it didn't matter because at that moment that He called me home by by my name, that He birthed me with His Holy Spirit, I knew at that point that I possessed everything. And it was because everything that He brought me made up the deficit. I don't care what you used to do for a living. I don't care if you ran a corporation. I don't care if you couch surfed all your life and freeloaded off everybody else. And neither does Jesus. In here, the playing field is leveled. You remember... um. Saving Private Ryan. Anyone see that? There's that. Um, there's that point in there. It's really cool where the Tom Hanks character, like, this dude's rad, right? And he's leading this platoon, you know, through just crazy scenarios and situations um, to to rescue this guy, you know. And uh, the whole time, his crew is trying to figure out what he did before coming to the war. Right, And he won't give it to him. Like, he won't tell him. He's not saying anything. And so these guys are like taking bets. And, and, the, and the pool keeps going higher and higher. And they're trying to figure, they're trying to bet on what this dude was, what he did before he came. And he finally like gives it up when the, when the pot gets big enough. He's like, what's the pot at? And he gives it up. And none of them guessed it right. He was a school teacher. 
And you can see kind of the smirk on their face like, wow, you know, imagine that. Like, none of them got it right. But the truth was, after he revealed it, it didn't matter. It didn't change a thing. That they, it, did, it didn't change the situation that they found themselves together in at all. It was just a fun bit of trivia. It's the same thing here, guys. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. What we find right now is you and I are locked together on a battlefield in one purpose, which is to proclaim and glorify the name of Jesus Christ among the nations. That's it. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what we've done or what we haven't done. Number two, the second thing we can take away from this is that not all boasting is bad. Not all boasting is bad, like we already mentioned. One of the things that's clear in this text is that whether you're a poor man in Christ or a rich man in Christ, your reason to boast is Christ. Both have a reason to boast, rich and poor. Did you know that Jesus is the best thing about us? Jesus is the best thing about you, and Jesus is the best thing about me. That really should go on all of our tombstones. Jesus was the best thing about me. Besides that, there's, there's not a lot there. Christ is the best thing about us. We have much to boast in him over because he is our greatest accomplishment. I don't care what, I don't care if you've cured cancer. It cannot top the accomplishment of Christ on behalf of the human race. Christ cured the greatest cancer that's ever existed, which is sin. Number three, only Christ and his riches will go on forever. Do you guys believe that today? Do you know this? Only Jesus and what comes with him will go on forever. That's the third thing that we can take out of this text. Only Christ and his riches will never be burnt up. To trust in the temporal is death, but to trust in the eternal is life and wealth. I had to check myself last week when the fires were gnarly and the smoke was gnarly. And my wife comes to me one night, or maybe it was morning, I don't know. And she says, I think we need to think about an escape plan. I think we need to think about, like, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and what we're going to grab if something comes rolling through here. And I'm like, you know, like, why do you always, you know, got to bring up negative things, you know? Like, I don't want to think about that. I'm a fly by the moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, if a fire's coming, I'll figure it out, like, in the next five seconds. Like, I don't know. But she's right. She's like, you know what? This is great. We probably ought to, you know. And so I'm like, okay. And so I, I start like making this like list. I start thinking, and, and some things are immediate, like no-brainers, like this picture and this little thing that I got from my grandpa that's been in the family for years. Like I'll grab a couple of things, and then of course we got the trailer, so we'll get the car hooked up, and only so much will go in the trailer, and so you know it's got to be small stuff. And like it, it started off like like pretty simple. 
Um, and then it got increasingly more difficult the more I'm sitting there thinking about this. You know why? Because my list of things to grab got longer. I, I just didn't know when to stop. And it hit me that the more that I've accomplished and achieved and accumulated over the years, the more I've become a slave to things that just don't matter. You know what the reality is? Everything that I own right now in this moment is going to cease to be mine someday. Everything that you own right now in this moment is going to cease to be yours. It's either going to be destroyed or someone else is going to be enjoying it. Whether it be by a fire that comes through or a heart attack or war or Jesus coming back, which I vote for that one. I, I, that one sounds really good right now. Come Lord Jesus. Everything that we have has a shelf life. It all has an expiration date. Including these things that we're living in to enjoy those things with. Shelf life. I'm looking out in my backyard. I get up every morning, same routine, grab my cup of coffee, sit in this chair that looks out at the back windows, and my wife has just created this beautiful space. It's such a rad place. And the grass is green. And the, the trees are full. And the flowers are beautiful. And it's hard to believe that in about another three or four weeks, that landscape ain't going to resemble what it looks like right now. It is not going to look the same in a few weeks. Which is exactly what James is trying to get us to imagine here and understand. Year after year, I am amazed in August and September that that yard is not going to look like that. It's almost hard to believe. But guess what? Every year, it dies. And it ceases to look like that. But you know what? Jesus doesn't. He never ceases to be who he is right now. And he never will. He never will. All the riches that he brings to us through him also will never cease to be. For a lot of you, what James says here in verses 10 and 11 probably sounds familiar, and it probably sounds familiar to you because of this text in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, which says this, A voice cries, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. People, we must understand that the things on earth that we hold as valuable are only valuable based on the condition that they continue to exist. And they're only 
valuable based on the condition that we continue to exist to enjoy them. They're conditional values. With Jesus, the true word of God, this is not so. This is why nothing even comes close or compares to the surpassing value of Christ. His value is not conditional because his existence is eternal. He will always hold value. Do you guys see what James is doing in these verses? He's doing what he's often accused of not doing. He's preaching the gospel. The gospel is here. The gospel is that Jesus is the great equalizer of man. The gospel is that Jesus is the greatest value for man. The greatest accomplishment for man. He's preaching that in here no one is less than the person next to them and no one is greater than the person next to them. In here in the church, there's just Jesus and his greatness. And that's what we have to boast in. His greatness. Lord God, thank you so much for accomplishing for the sinful human race that which they were unable to accomplish for themselves. I thank you, God, that you have given me value and worth and purpose because of what your Son has accomplished for me. I want to boast in that, Lord. I want to learn to boast in that more and more every day, not just uh, to myself, not just to my family, but all those who I come in touch with. God, make us those people that no matter where we find ourselves on this earth, we boast about your goodness and your glory and your accomplishment and your achievement through the cross. That we would make you big every day. In Jesus' name, amen.